Welcome back to the Alternative Travelers podcast. This is our Sustainable Travel 101 episode, where we go over our top tips for sustainable travel. We'll talk about how to reduce your negative impact, as well as how to increase your positive impact on local communities, the environment, and the economy. Not all travel is made equal. Certain modes of travel are not as harmless as they seem. So if you're interested in learning how to be a more responsible, ethical, and eco-friendly traveler, stay tuned. Welcome to the Alternative Travelers Podcast. I'm Sam. And I'm Varen. In each episode, we'll share stories, tips, and advice to help you live a life of unconventional travel. For more, head to alternativetravelers.com. And now, let's get to the episode. Welcome back to the Alternative Travelers podcast. In this episode, we're going to talk about sustainable travel. So like a sustainable travel 101. First, we're going to talk about why you should care (laughs) and then kind of going into what you can do. I think sustainable travel is more important than ever because we've seen how the environment has bounced back once people aren't flying all over the place and polluting waters and all this kind of stuff. We've seen how the environment can rejuvenate in a very short period of time, actually. So that's the positive aspect of it. But it shows us that we really absolutely cannot continue the way that we have been treating this planet up to this point, and especially recently. So travel can be, in some ways, very negative for the environment but it can be very positive in other ways and positive for local communities and economies one negative we've seen right now when no one's traveling is that a lot of economies are dependent on tourism and they're really hurting you know so we should get back to travel and we shouldn't do away with travel entirely but we absolutely need to be way more mindful about the ways in which we're going about it So that's why we feel strongly that once travel opens up again, everyone needs to become a more sustainable travel. I hope in the future it'll just be like, I travel and you do it in a sustainable way. Like that's part of traveling. We're probably a long way off from that, but like a lot more people are thinking along these lines. So we thought it'd be helpful to do an episode talking about it. But first, Varen, can you kind of explain the three parts of sustainable travel? So there's three parts of sustainable travel. And they're just as important as the other. And they're all intermeshed. They're all interrelated. It's not like they're things you can actually completely separate. It's just a way, it's a helpful way to think about what sustainable travel means. Because if you decide to search something like that, you'll look and see online, there's things where people talk about responsible travel and ethical travel. And the truth is all this stuff should be under one category. You know, uh, would you say that you want to be an ethical traveler, but not a responsible one? Like, How does that sound? So I'd imagine that these things should all kind of go together. And that's partly why we choose sustainable travel. It's not something that's a firmly developed industry or field or movement. It has all these little partial movements. But the main idea is that you're contributing to something that's sustainable. And sustainable meaning it's something that you can keep doing without negative or harmful effects to everyone involved. So a good way to think about sustainable travel is that there's three parts. There's the environment. This one's a pretty easy one to understand. How does your mode of travel affect the environment if you're taking a plane versus driving over land versus a cruise versus public transit like a train or a bus? And then you want to look at how is my travel affecting the economy where I'm going, especially the local economy? If you decide to take a vacation in the Caribbean and it's all expense paid package or whatever, where's that money going? Does it go to the people that are working there? How? What are the wages that they're earning? Often these big chains or huge resorts, all that money is just being siphoned out and it doesn't really contribute to the people there and their well-being. Which leads to the last part, which is the human, social, community aspect. Are you having a positive or negative impact on that in the place that you're visiting? Again, for example, depending on what you decide to partake in, when you go to visit a certain destination, it might have 
a positive effect on the people or are you staying in places that are destroying the community's fabric? It's important to think about what your impact on the local community is. And we're going to go into our tips and there'll be examples of how you're having a positive or negative impact because sometimes certain things are packaged and marketed as a way to help locals, but instead they're kind of fraught with complicated issues and a bit problematic, to put it mildly. So we want to emphasize that ultimately it all comes down to people. This has to do with ethics. This has to do with taking responsibility and understanding the impact of your actions, regardless of what your intentions are. Yeah, and I think it's also good to know, I know, like, you might be thinking right now, like, oh my god, there's so many things I have to think about, blah, 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 I just want to go on my one week of vacation a year and not think about all this stuff, and like, assuming if you're listening to this episode, you're already interested, so still, it doesn't have to be, like, a chore, you don't have to be, like, I got all these things to worry about, I'm not gonna have fun, and this or that, like, it's just you know, reframe how you think about it. It's like our collective responsibility to be mindful of our actions and how they're impacting others. But that doesn't mean like, you know, you won't enjoy being a responsible traveler. It can be very rewarding. And, you know, you'll feel way better if you know you're taking these steps to be like, I'm having my vacation and I'm also making sure that I'm benefiting locals and I'm not harming the environment, you know, or this or that. So we hope to show that it's not as daunting as you might think. And like, we will leave a link in the show notes to a quick downloadable with all of these tips. So don't worry about like writing them down and we'll link to other articles too. So, you know, it's just about taking it one step at a time. It's not like you one day wake up and like, I need to be more of a sustainable traveler. This is what I need to do. Like everything at once, you know, it's like a process like anything when you're making changes. So yeah, I just wanted to say that don't feel daunted or overwhelmed. So with that, number one tip, minimize your flights as much as you can and travel overland whenever possible. So when you're traveling, if you're traveling by plane, that has a huge environmental impact. So there's no way around that. We are not in the camp of you should never fly again. I just don't think that's realistic to ask most people to do. I mean, most people aren't doing it now, obviously. That's because they're forced to. I wrote a whole article on this, so I won't like super get into it. But I just, you know, there are positive benefits that come out of traveling outside of your home country. And it can be an expansive experience and bring us closer together and understand other cultures better. So, but that being said, you also shouldn't be jumping on a plane every week. So we try to minimize our flights as much as possible. Yeah, so for example, overland travel looks like ideally mass transit, public transit all the way. It's just way more fuel efficient, more economical, everything you can think of, it ticks off those boxes. And unfortunately in the US we do not have the best public transportation. Actually that's putting it in my yeah. mind. <laughs> we have pretty terrible public transit in the US. So unfortunately you can't really travel the US just overland unless you have a car. And is that necessarily the best way to be traveling around? So it's kind of inescapable that you're going to have to use something that has some kind of impact on the environment. And hopefully we're going to move towards a future where we can balance those things out. And the, the most realistic attainable option would be doing the whole carbon offset with public transit. It's just nothing beats how efficient public transit is. So whenever possible, take a train, take a bus. It's much easier to do this in Europe, for example, than it is in the U.S., unfortunately. But you try to do what you can with that mindset rather than just, I can pay for a plane, so I'm just going to always fly all the time. It's funny because as full-time travelers, people imagine we're constantly traveling. But it seems that more often than not, we travel way less than all our friends and family who live in one place. They rack in way more miles via plane than we do uh, probably in a year. They probably can sometimes will do in a couple of months or something. It's just crazy how many people we know who just travel so often. It's, just, it's not a thing to hop on a plane now that they've gotten so much cheaper. And I imagine they will be coming moving forward. So... Uh, it's about doing it as much as you can and not just always relying on just flying everywhere. Try to expand your mindset about travel. Don't just feel like you have to go someplace super far-flung and exotic every time. There's lots of interesting things closer to home and always consider trying to travel locally and regionally. 
Yeah, I think it's going to be bigger now more than ever once travel kind of opens up again, that it's going to be local travel first, domestic travel. So there's so much to explore in your backyard, like no matter where you are, there are always new things to uncover and you can get there overland. So, you know, it might be a bus to another town or a train if you're somewhere with a good train system. Yeah, so what we try to do is minimize our flights and, like, take a flight to a place and, like, stay within that region or area or places we can get to train with after that, you know? Like, I know so many people travel from the U.S. to Europe. They take a flight into Barcelona or whatever, and then they literally spend their whole vacation flight hopping around Europe every few days. I know that that can be really tempting because... Flights in Europe are historically have been cheap. I mean, remains to be seen whether these low cost airlines are going to survive COVID. So we'll see in the future. But, you know, cheap airlines have been a thing in Europe for a long time. And it's really easy. I mean, I've certainly been there like the first year I lived in Spain. You know, it's really hard to resist a 20 euro flight, you know, to London or Paris or whatever. So we argue and this goes kind of into slow travel, which I'm sure we'll have a separate whole episode on. You know, if you just fly into one place and then explore that place, you'll have a much richer and deeper experience. Like, say you fly into Barcelona from the U.S., but instead of hopping around, you, you know, take a train to other nearby Spanish cities. You could take a train to France. You know, like, there's so many things that you can do that can minimize the flights that you take without having to stop flying completely. You know, there's a lot of talk in the sustainable travel sphere, I guess, of not flying. But one of the things that I would argue is people taking their once a year vacation, that's just just not the problem. You know, the problem are people that are flying like every other week, business travelers that are flying every day. And I think there's a balance to be struck. And hopefully in the future, there'll be more sustainable fuels. You know, I've been, I know they've been working working on like algae based fuels like there's a lot that humans can do if we put our minds to it so hopefully more of that will come out but on the individual level just trying to you know reduce your flights as much as possible we try to only fly like a couple times a year which like considering we travel full time <laughs> is you know pretty a minimal so we know that it's more difficult in certain places than others. I mean, we're in the U.S. now. We've been traveling here. It's really difficult to get around without a car or without flying, you know? So do what you can and be flexible wherever you are. I know that a lot of Europeans can't fathom how bad our train system is here. But do what you can and once you are in the place continue to travel overland once you get somewhere. So what do we do, for example, Baron? How do we get around locally? Like I mentioned before, public transit is taking trains and buses. But now even more so, there's bike shares, there's walking. We love to walk. We always try to walk somewhere first. If it's too much of a distance, then we look into biking and bike shares. And a lot of cities are getting bike shares these days. And even if they don't have an official, you know, bike share program that's in partnership with the city. Nowadays, there's even more and more of these, I don't know what the word is for these, but like app-driven bike or scooter share, you know, programs. Some people really don't like the scooters. They don't like where they're being left. We're not going to get into that right now. But just know that there's so many things you can do to get around. And walking and biking is a great way to do it. I mean, especially if you're going to Europe, the urban design of these cities in Europe are just way more pedestrian friendly. And I would argue that if you're going to Europe and not walking, you're missing out. You need to be walking everywhere that you can, you know. Use public transport to get you around once you're somewhere. There's no reason to be jet setting everywhere. And once you're somewhere, walk. Walk as much as you can to check out things. They experience things. It's, you know, it's a very big part of European life in almost every country. Yeah, it, maybe it seems self-explanatory to some, but, you know, a lot of people are used to using ride-sharing apps like Lyft and Uber, you know, here in the States where distances are so much more spread out and that's just their habit. But we're saying, like, try to use other options when you're traveling, especially too. So, you know, you experience the place in a different way, in a better way, we would say, we would argue. Um, and then it's also, you know, way less of a carbon footprint if you, you know, you're biking versus you're taking a private lift that you, you know, or Uber or whatever. And yeah, like Varen said, these bike share programs are pretty awesome. We've used them like all over. It's really cool. A lot of them, you know, you just 
scan something on your phone. You scan the bike and then you check it out. It's usually really cheap and it's a really fun way to get around. If you're not comfortable biking, like again, just, you know, walk, use public transportation when it's, you know, there, when you're, if you're getting around a city. Yeah. So traveling overland in general, this would be our top tip. That is definitely transportation can be a big carbon footprint. And that's why tip number two would be carbon offsetting. So really briefly what that is, you basically like donate to organizations. There's a wide variety of where you can donate, but basically to like mitigate the carbon footprint of your trip or your living. You know, some people offset everything with their life or whatever, but I think most people are aware of it in terms of offsetting your flight since that is a big carbon footprint. So, you know, you can donate to different organizations. You can take different like methods with it. You know, some you can donate to like organizations that are working towards sustainable fuel sources. You can donate towards like reforestation efforts. You can donate towards, you know, whatever. There's a wide variety and there's different websites where you can do it. I, I believe Gold Standard is the one that I've used. I'll link it in the show notes. You know, the idea isn't that it's it's not gonna... Like, some people are like, I made my trip carbon neutral. And it's like, you did not make your trip carbon neutral. Like, you, the emissions were still happened, but you're just, you know, trying to, yeah, offset it, you know? So... It shouldn't be like, oh, I'm offsetting my trip so I can fly a ton, you know, like that's not what it is. So that's why offsetting can be kind of a touchy issue, but it's still like something, you know, that you can do and that you can donate to these different organizations. Um, Another thing I wanted to add is that sometimes you'll see that when you're buying your flight, add on, you know, for $5 a carbon offset tax or whatever and you purchase it right with your flight and that's like really easy easier than searching out something yourself but there's been some discussion of whether you know the airline's using it in the right way or they're going to the right places so I think doing your own research and donating separately is is the best thing to do and again I'll link to some resources in the show notes yeah I mean I think a really good simple way an oversimplification of it but a good way to think of this is that you create, depending on what you use, there's a carbon, there's like a cost to it in terms of carbon emissions. And we need to invest in things that help offset that. Forests are beautiful. We don't want to chop down forests, not just because they're beautiful or whatever. I think some people don't realize that they have a, they are part of the balance in this planet and they literally are carbon sinks. So they absorb plants, trees, forests, they absorb huge amounts of carbon. So if we're putting more carbon dioxide into the air, and then at the same time removing trees, it's like a double whammy. It's just a thing to keep in mind, and it's something that you can try to work on. And if you're really interested in how all this stuff works, Sam was mentioning, like, you can't just eliminate your flight's carbon emissions. It's important to understand that virtually everything we do has some kind of cost in terms of carbon emissions. And there's a great book on it called How Bad Are Bananas? The Carbon Footprint of Everything. And I will link to that too. It's a great book. Yeah, it will give you, it goes from like the smallest thing and how much carbon uh, dioxide it produces all the way up to some of the biggest things. So it'll, it'll slowly, gradually move up there. But it just gives you a sense of how all this stuff is connected. I mean... Modern human existence isn't the first time we've been pumping tons of carbon emissions into the air. There's a lot of things at at play. Part of the mechanism that the planet uses to keep things in balance. But you can definitely push it out of balance. And that's what we're trying to do is correct it and get it back in balance. Because whether you care about the environment or not, you're not going to want to live on a planet that's uh, so damn hot that you just can't exist. So I always like to argue that even if you're a selfish human being, you're going to want your home to not be on fire. So you should uh, pay attention to these things. Yes, exactly. So we've been talking about the transportation industry, which I think it's pretty easy to recognize that that has a massive carbon footprint. But there is another industry that often gets overlooked that has a massive impact as well. The animal agriculture industry. Yes, not everyone likes to hear this, which is why you don't always hear about it. One of our big gripes we have with the sustainable travel community, whether they call themselves responsible tourism, ethical travel, you know, minimizing your environmental impact travel, whatever you want to call it, eco-travel. A lot of them don't want to look at the impact that animal agriculture has because it means openly challenging 
a habit that we have on a daily basis, which is several times a day eating animal products. Now, depending on who you talk to, the amount, uh, the size of the carbon footprint can be equal to that of the fossil fuel industry, slightly less or more. Depends on who you ask, because unfortunately, this is a, as much as we're passionate about pushing this and informing about this, the fossil fuel industry does like the convenient scapegoat of animal agriculture. So sometimes when you look up things that calculate stuff or there's like a little informational thing, you'll find out it's sponsored by someone in the fossil fuel industry. Now, that doesn't mean just because they're doing that, that this information is incorrect. It's a huge contributor to, in, in terms, it's a, it has a huge carbon footprint. I mean, you cannot ignore, you can't talk about all these cars pumping out gas, you know, millions of cars, and then also billions of animals literally farting out gas on top of other things that they do to the environment. It, it affects, animal agriculture has such a huge effect on the environment. And if you want to even argue that you don't care about the animals, there's a human factor. Who do you think is working in these places? Mostly undocumented in immigrants, people of color, and then it's their communities that get trashed with the waste from these places. So when you travel abroad or domestically, what you partake in is no exception. There's not like a separate animal agriculture food section for the travel industry. It's all interconnected. So we feel that sustainable travel and vegan travel should overlap because there's definitely vegan travelers out there who don't think twice about their carbon footprint in terms of other aspects of their lifestyle. So we want to encourage you to try to eat more plants and eat less animal products. Look, there's so many resources on this and we'll link some. There's such a huge impact that this is making on the environment. And again, if you don't even care about the environment, you, you got to keep in mind the human aspect of it. It really does affect the quality of people's lives. And if there was other jobs instead of these ones, you better believe a lot of these people would rather work those jobs. Yeah. So obviously, like, there's so much that goes into this and... You know, even if you're just choosing more plant-based meals, like, and no meatless Monday is a big thing, you know, not just while you're traveling, but at home, you know, but obviously, like, this is a huge topic, and we have a whole separate episode on how to eat vegan while traveling. I'll have that episode in the show notes, too, if you want to learn more. So, but it's just really important, like Varen said, you know, vegan travel is often seen separate as sustainable travel, and we just don't feel like that makes any sense. And one thing that really riles me up about this is because it's talking about our next point. So next sustainable travel tip is to only have ethical animal encounters. And a lot of people in the sustainable and responsible tourism industry talk about the importance of, you know, choosing experiences where you can, you know, see animals, but that's not harming them. And then they'll go and have a burger after doing that. And I'm just like, that makes absolutely no sense. So that's kind of what started me thinking about the intersection between sustainable and vegan travel. And to get into what that looks like ethical animal experiences yeah i mean when we're talking about ethical animal experiences we just talked about trying to eat more plants so that's that's focusing on what you eat that's one great way reduce your animal product consumption but what do what does unethical animal experiences look like if you're not eating the animals and that could be literally i, I feel like a lot of people have probably seen this where they have a friend or they know someone who takes a picture with a tiger and you're like, how the hell did they get right next to a tiger? Or maybe they even touching the tiger or petting the tiger. Guess what? They doped that tiger up. They shot it full of tranquilizers. It's not really a consensual experience. I'm sure that tiger wants to be left alone. But then you're like, oh, I get to have this cool picture with my arm around the tiger. There's a lot of experiences like that. That's one example. Another example can be like elephant riding. Another example could be maybe even camel riding. I mean, even things as, that seem as culturally acceptable as like horseback riding. You have to look into it. For example, owning a horse and riding a horse might not necessarily be an ethical conundrum for some people. But if you decide you want to take the horse-drawn carriages in Central Park in New York City, those horses are treated like shit, literally. Like, you know? they're literally dying in the street. There's it, videos of it. It's horrible. Again, it's not as simple as black and white, but you can generally look and see, okay, is are, are these animals being treated like a theme park ride? 
there's a good chance it's not good for them. Yeah, there's so much. I'm just like, wow, we could have a whole episode on this because there's just so many. Unfortunately, there's so many unethical animal experiences out there because people just want to, like you said, treat it like a theme park and treat animals like a theme park. And it's they're, they're their own, you know, living beings with what they want. Like Varen said about the tiger, the tiger doesn't want your arm around it. It, like, it just wants to be left alone. It's not natural, like, at all. So, yeah, there's so many unethical animal experience, uh, you know, things, tourist attractions, unfortunately. Um, you know, the ways that you can can experience animals in an ethical way would be, like, you know, less glamorous things. Because, like, going for a hike, you know, you could see animals, but you might not, you know. Or, I don't know, like, snorkeling, for example, if you're snorkeling and you see fish and you see, like, I went snorkeling and I remember seeing a nurse shark and it was just swimming around, you know, but then these things just very quickly can turn into unethical experiences because someone realizes that they can make a profit out of it. And so, you know, they force dolphins into a specific area or like whatever it is, you know, so there's just so many too many experiences on both sides like ethical or unethical to talk about but like just really if you if animals are in any way involved just really look into it and really think about it like think would you want to be in that experience would you want to be ridden like you know so yeah just be really mindful of that one one thing that we've done a couple of times is we visited like animal sanctuaries. So these were like sanctuaries where, you know, often like farm animals have been rehomed. So that's like a cool way to like learn about animals and be, you know, close to them. Not like a petting zoo situation, but like, you know, they're, they're living their best lives. So we one time went to uh, a sanctuary for like zoo animals or illegal breeding animals that get recovered from that Remember oh yeah the, the cat sanctuary the cat sanctuary for big cats this is not a petting zoo not the one from tiger king because i know everyone's probably thinking that right now let's not get into tiger king <laughs> but you you know tigers we're we're not even necessarily going to get into zoos i'm not a big fan of zoos either but there can be situations where people are trying to help ameliorate these unfortunate industry practices where they try to rescue tigers and let them live the rest of their life out being in a place that's more in 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 line with how they want to live naturally and that's what some of these sanctuaries can be a place for and then you can get your i need to see an exotic exotic animal fix and just go to these places and see the animals and they'll explain to you how they're not you know petting zoos these are animals that are big and dangerous and if you tried to pet them they would rip your arm off yeah, basically, like, I feel like a good kind of rule of thumb is, like, if there's, like, interaction with the animal, if you're petting it or riding it or, like, whatever, like, a forced interaction, like, that's probably not an ethical experience. If it looks innocuous, like riding an elephant, you need to look into what's happening behind the scenes when the animal's not being ridden and what do they have to do to get that animal to be so docile, right? But as long as there's a demand for that stuff, this is what's going to pull in money, this is what's going to create the jobs. So the people who have to do those jobs, they have to, like, beat animals. And I'm telling you, nobody, it, for the most part, most people are not into that, would rather not spend their time treating animals poorly. Whether they think it's something they can tolerate or not, it has an effect on you. It definitely messes you up a bit, you know, to have to make it your, make a living on directly something else's suffering. I was just thinking about, like, how PTSD is, like, rampant among workers in the slaughterhouse industry. You know, Varen was, was talking about people having these jobs and that they you know wouldn't want to who says "Ooh, i want to grow up to work in a slaughterhouse yeah so like that brings us to our next point which is think about how you're supporting the local economy where where you're going so varen kind of already brought this up in the beginning um when he was talking about the different parts of sustainable travel and this is obviously a big one so just think about how your actions are impacting the local economy are they supporting it are they not contributing it to it? You're on a trip, so you're spending money, obviously. And is that money positively impacting the community where you are or not? So an example, and this is a really, really mild one. It doesn't really dig deep into things. But who and where should you patronize when you're visiting? Okay, are these local artisans or are you just going to McDonald's in another country? 
you know maybe if mcdonald's has certain local initiatives there that are really helping people in the economy maybe it can be a good thing i can't say that it's always a bad thing i would kind of bet money it's mostly bad try to avoid international chains try to go to stuff that's local because you people who are locally involved people who are low like deal with people locally they're more likely to have initiatives or be involved in the community and make choices that don't harm the community when you're a huge corporation and you're just building number 800 of whatever story that you have i mean you're just not going to look into these things you just can't get involved on a practical level not even to demonize them like you literally can't that's not part of your bottom line you know it's about where what's profitable so it in order to really get a good handle on what helps support the local community you have to be involved and patronize local endeavors so that might be not going to starbucks not going to mcdonald's when you go to visit uh you know a country i remember one time we were eating out in one of our favorite uh restaurants in spain and a table over there was these three persons there and one of them had gotten mcdonald's and brought mcdonald's to that restaurant i'm just like why why go to another country just to eat at mcdonald's that makes no sense to me unless they have something really unique there you can't find anywhere else like the McVegan in Finland. That's the one exception we'll make. Yeah, I mean, I would definitely argue, like, a lot of these tips I feel like are are just about sustainable living in general, not just sustainable travel. Like, I would argue don't go to McDonald's even in your home country, but, you know, especially when you're traveling. But, um, yeah, so, so go local, you know, with everything. Like, Varen mentioned local artisans. Like, yeah, don't you know, just pick up some chintzy magnets at the souvenir shop. There's like 10 in a row that all look the same. Where do you think that stuff is coming from? It's coming from a factory in China. So alternatively, there's a lot of, you know, you can buy stuff from a local artisan. I personally love getting uh, locally made earrings. I get a new pair of earrings. I try to everywhere that we go because we can travel full time. So obviously I can't accumulate all stuff, but it's like a nice nice little souvenir and whatever you know you can get other kinds of like jewelry or like locally made clothing or art some local photography like whatever there's so many things and it's not just souvenirs you know like local restaurants just um go go local in all respects which kind of brings us to our next point which is choosing ethical accommodations which you know, locally owned accommodations is like part of that. So what does that look like, Varen? You know, if you look for like maybe a, a local uh, bed and breakfast, for example, that would be something that very likely if it's just owned by two people who live there. Yeah, that money, they're employing people who, who live there and that money's going directly back to those people in that community. But if you were to do something like Airbnb, that can be problematic depending where you go. We are not saying Airbnb is always bad but it is problematic in certain cities in certain countries. For example, in Madrid and Barcelona, typically a lot of them can be illegal. There's a lot of shifty, shady dealings, and a lot of times what happens is that they buy these apartment buildings or they buy out units and then you know have those as Airbnbs because you make way more money, and that displaces people trying to find affordable housing. We had a, a good friend of ours who was living with someone in Spain and got kicked out because his roommate was like, I'd rather Airbnb your room because then I'll get like three times as much rent. So Airbnb can work in, in their cities that do regulate it. You know, for example, in Portland, Oregon, you can only have one unit per address. So it, there's, it, it looks different depending where you go. So don't just always assume that whatever's the cheapest option is the best option. Often there's great hostels. There's great other, there'll be local hotels. I mean, do your research and recognize that if you can afford to travel, you can probably afford to pay a little more for something that's better for the local community. Yeah, I would just like very strongly advocate against Airbnb in European cities because the city, you know, the city centers are historically like bounded. They're small historic centers. Everyone wants to stay like right in the middle there's just a limited amount of available apartments and Airbnb is really disrupting like just so many European cities and it's become incredibly problematic. I mean, we saw it in Spain in just so many cities in Spain and yeah, it's even like you brought up the example of our friend who got kicked out of his apartment because some people are like, oh, well, if you 
you know, just rent a room, that's ethical. Like, not necessarily, unfortunately, very unfortunately, because I really think that concept of Airbnb is great, but in execution, it can be really detrimental. In places like the U.S., that are very spread out and we unfortunately don't have a hostel or bed and breakfast culture like at all. You know, Airbnbs and people have just more space, you know, Airbnbs can be like a great thing and it can be kind of like a better option sometimes than like in the US it'll be like a chain hotel or an Airbnb, you know, like there's just no bed and breakfast or hostels. Like there are some and there there's becoming more, but it's just not the norm. Like it's not the norm in other places like guest houses. So hopefully we'll see more of that because, you know, we could talk forever about the Airbnb issue, but talking about the ethical accommodations that you, you know, can choose, like, yeah, try to support local guest houses. Obviously, more sustainable guest houses, like, are great, but a lot of times they're more expensive, you know? Like, eco-lodges are, like, marketed as that, and they'll be, like, $200 a night, you know? That's not <laughs> our style or budget of travel at all, which is actually why we always advocate for house-sitting as sustainable travel, and we wrote a whole article on this, which I'll link if you're curious, but, it, like, House-sitting is just all about the sharing economy in a real ethical way. You know, you're staying in someone's house, taking care of someone's pets when they would be gone. Like, that would be empty anyway. They wouldn't Airbnb it out, you know? So, like, someone's leaving that house, you're staying there while they're gone kind of situation. So that's something that we're really passionate about because, yeah, I just don't feel like that's problematic at all. Yeah. You're not displacing somebody or contributing to unaffordable housing by house sitting which is why we're huge advocates of house sitting and some people will be like well i want to go to this place at this time I'm like well if you care about more sustainable travel you're going to need to be more flexible and maybe consider traveling to places you wouldn't normally and you might have a great experience there who knows but um one more point i want to make think about if you're tr why you travel in the first place to experience other cultures but what happens is if, if you go to every european city and the downtown is a majority of airbnbs and then like Starbucks and McDonald's. So what are you going to visit there anymore? A hollow shell of, oh, this historical building that the McDonald's is in. Just think about what you're traveling for and what you want to contribute. All those Airbnbs and Starbucks and McDonald's are uh, literally destroying the fabric of these cultures and what make these places unique. This is definitely having a dramatic effect on people's lives. And you can find videos of this where people are just like, now all these favorite places I used to eat at are closed up because they can't afford rent anymore. You know, it really does dramatically change these historical city centers. Yeah, and it's really sad and it's a real shame. I mean, we saw it happening in Madrid, just way more chains popping up, like five guys, you know, just there's a whole neighborhood, Las Letras in Madrid, which is like so Airbnbs freaking everywhere. So... Yeah, it's just, you know, no one wants to hear that Airbnb isn't ethical because it's, it's become ubiquitous and the norm for a lot of people to turn to. But in a lot of places, it's really problematic. So, like, related to that is our next point, which is to, we've already been touching on it, but respect the locals and the local culture. So, you know, this is related to, you know, we were talking about supporting local economy and obviously locals are supported by the local economy, but like it goes like beyond that. It just being mindful of your presence and your the impact you're having with your actions, you know, like does it have a positive impact on these people? There's a reason why certain demographics like Americans or even the Brits get a bad reputation in other countries because they just show up, don't want to speak, learn even a few words of the local language or customs and just be incredibly rude to people. They're just like getting drunk all the time and like this is a problem in like a lot of the Spanish islands where people vacation from like England or Germany and they'll go there just get drunk and like disturb the local peace. Yeah. <laughs> like it's a real issue. It sounds ridiculous, but like it's become such a big issue. Also, actually this is kind of related to Airbnb. People are staying in apartments in residential areas where there aren't hotels. Like they're impacting the local life through that, you know, like hotels are usually like somewhat centrally located, but like if you're staying at Airbnb, you can stay like anywhere. And so people are staying in these residential areas and just being, like, rowdy and disrupting locals. So that's just, you know, another example. 
this is a, a serious issue that has a lot of nuance to it. You know, there's cities and cultures and places that expect if they have a lot of tourism and they live off of tourism, they, yeah, they expect it to happen, but they expect it to be in certain places. And so when these boundaries get crossed or things aren't clearly delineated, you start to have these problems that just affect the quality of life for a lot of locals, unfortunately. And so the problem can look very different depending on where you go. Or even, you know, you will see these kind of issues happen in certain more kind of like tropical resorts. Tulum. Tulum, for example, in uh, Mexico, where you'll have the first street closest to the water is like really nice and done up. And then it's just slummy afterwards. You really want to think about where you're going and do a little bit of research because there's a good chance that the reason I know about Tulum is because there's a very complicated history that's happened of just people abusing and exploiting the land and the people there to create a getaway for affluent urbanites, you know? So it's it's really important to just look in these things. We've touched upon some of these things lightly, and it will take much more discussion to really understand what's at the heart of these things and what's the problem with a lot of these things. There's a lot of class classism and racism intersecting here but it's just something we want to kind of mention and touch upon consider these things when you're traveling these last three are all very interconnected and to kind of round all this off it's super important to be mindful of voluntourism yeah this like goes hand in hand with respecting the locals and culture and so like you know voluntourism like it might sound like oh i'm gonna go to you know Uganda and like you know volunteer at an orphanage there and I'll be doing good on my vacation so like you know want to feel good and you feel like you're helping and like yay the reality is that so many of these voluntourism you know trips or experiences or whatever you want to call them aren't ethical so like with the example of orphanages like unfortunately a lot of the time, like, the kids are, like, straight up kidnapped and put in the orphanage, and then they get volunteers, quote-unquote, because, like, a lot of times with the volunteer programs, you actually, like, pay to volunteer, and, like, the idea is that, you know, like, you're supporting the organization by paying, but, yeah, it's just kind of like a business, and so this is, like, obviously a super complicated issue, and we're by no means experts in this so we're not gonna like go into it or like tell you what places are good and what are bad but there are some resources some people that do talk about this and i'll link them in the show notes but it can be very problematic volunteerism just the idea even the whole idea that like someone from a westernized country needs to go to like you know africa or central america or like parts of asia and like you know save the people is that's just the idea is problematic very racist but like think of it like this what would be a better use of resources if there is let's say this orphanage is for real why wouldn't you just take the money that you were going to spend on that trip and donate it so they can employ actual people there to take care of these babies why should you be flying yourself over to do that this is, I mean, this is even an issue in a lot of um, religious institutions, things called mission trips, where they'll send out uh, tons of missionaries out to, like, help some village or whatever like that. And the truth is the, the, the cost of living there is so much lower, you could take all that money spent on sending all these white Westerners over and just pay some people locally. Just give them that money. Give them the money. They don't need you. They need the money. So if you can think of it in that regard... Why are you specially equipped to go solve some other country's problem, especially if it's something you're trying to do on your vacation? And what what's that about? You're trying to get, feel good about yourself on vacation? Just go take a vacation somewhere. It doesn't need to be, you know, if you're going to some place and, again, maybe we need a quick definition of volunteerism. Volunteerism is, a, is basically taking volunteer and tourism and putting it together because you're essentially acting like a tourist. It's just a type of tourism. And it usually involves paying to volunteer somewhere. And generally speaking, you shouldn't do this. If anything, if some kind of help is needed somewhere, you would be providing more by sending the money you would spend to send yourself there. Yeah, and if you, like, really want to volunteer and, like, feel like, you know, just do that at home. Yeah, there's <laughs> people, you know how much help people need in the U.S.? Are you kidding me? We like to act like everything's okay here, and we're not. There's There's a lot of work to be done here at home in the U.S. or in your own country. 
Yeah. All right. So now uh, those are some heavier ethical issues, moral issues. So let's let's round things out with a couple of lighter, really practical things that you can do. Yeah. So I know, yeah, we got, got into like the responsible human aspect of it, but another part of sustainable travel is like reducing not just your carbon footprint, not just your negative impact on the community, but reducing like your physical waste. So there's some practical things you can do, and it's our last couple of tips to minimize your waste while traveling. And a lot of it is just very much inspired from a community called the Low Impact Movement, like ESSA, which is really cool because I think it's a better way to look at it than like zero waste because that's impossible. So yeah, these last couple of tips focus on very practical, actionable things you can do that will absolutely help minimize your waste. And I know Sam's a huge fan of this one. Yeah, so having a reusable travel kit. So I've put together kind of a little bag of all of these items to help us reduce our waste on the go. So a bunch of different stuff. Like I have an article that I'll, I'll link with all this stuff, but quick overview. Like, you know, I have a little reusable coffee cup because I love my coffee. And... um. I love having it, you know, in an actual ceramic cup if we go out, but sometimes they don't have them. They don't have ceramic cups or like if you're, you know, traveling and you want to get it to go or whatever. So the cup I have is a collapsible cup. So that's cool. So yeah, collapsible cup, like a reusable utensils. We have like some reusable containers. One of them's like stainless steel. The other one's like collapsible. We have a reusable like cloth napkin. What else? Reusable straw, reusable little foldable spoon spork thing <laughs> just like a bunch of different stuff um that fits like in a pretty small little bag so it's not like i mean it does it is kind of heavy which is a little bit annoying but like it packs down pretty small in a little day bag so you can carry it around with you and i always carry it with me because you never know what kind of circumstances you're gonna come across or what you're gonna want so that's just a way to like you know re reduce your waste while you're traveling like say you want to get a little pastry to go like instead of them putting in, in that little bag that you're just gonna throw away you can ask them to put it in your little container or on your little napkin or you know instead of getting plastic spoons at a place you use your own so we we've used the it's all the time and oh and of course a reusable water bottle um, we have little foldable ones, so yeah, it can be, it could seem like a lot to assemble, but like we just kind of assembled it over time and it's been really helpful to reduce like our plastic waste and garbage while we're traveling. Yeah, I love these things. I love using them. I especially love seeing how much Sam loves using them. We have these reusable chopsticks that always people are like, oh my God, that's so cool. That usually gets the most positive responses when we whip out reusable chopsticks that are like half wood and half uh, metal but it does remind me one time when we went to a restaurant and we were using our chopsticks and then when we got leftover food we got that to go and there was a couple next to us at a table over and she really she really liked of the couple she really liked our stuff but the guy not so much and I remember him saying at one point oh that's weird and she's like why is that weird and I was just thinking, like, you should get a less lame boyfriend. Wow. But um, that, <laughs> that would be... That escalated quickly. You should get a more zero-waste boyfriend. This <laughs> boyfriend is just wasteful with his words. Oh, my gosh. Okay. So a good way to think about this stuff is that it's actually not that radical. This is what people used to do before we had cheap plastics and other cheap, crappy products. Plastics are important. We need them for IVs and in hospitals and stuff. But overwhelmingly, a huge problem with plastic is the single-use plastic, and we need to reduce that tremendously. So it's important to understand that there was a time where people just had to have reusable things. I mean, you have silverware in your kitchen. You don't always eat with a plastic fork and throw it away. And a lot of this is just habits and looking differently at things that we see as normal. Normal just means prevalent. doesn't mean it's natural or necessary. So when people look at a bulk store where you go in and everything's bulk and by weight and you, you minimize your packaging, I mean, this is what a grocer used to be, literally. So I think it's really important to think of this as this is how things used to be done. And we kind of have to, we don't have to go back to that. We just have to look back at that as uh, inspiration for how to go forward. It just kind of makes sense to do. We can't keep creating landfills. And I would argue that we'd feel very differently about waste if every time we threw out garbage, it had to be in our own backyard. Mm, yeah, definitely. 
All right, our last point, this is a quickie to round it up. Um, we're talking about like what you can pack, you know, to make your trip more sustainable. So packing a reusable little travel kit um, and also just packing less, like literally. Like I know that seems like kind of against what we just said, like pack more stuff to reduce your waste. But like apart from that, you know, pack less because, well, first of all, like if you're traveling by plane, the more people have heavy bags, like the more weight that is on the plane, the more fuel they're going to need, like the more that flight is going to have an impact. And also, if you have, like, these big, clunky, heavy bags, you're going to be more likely to want to take taxis instead of, like, public transportation or this or that. And you'd, you'd be surprised at how little you really need, you know? We're not saying travel with one t-shirt and one pair of pants, you know? It's funny, we show up for, like, house sits with our bags, and people are always like, that's all you have? <laughs> and they're leaving on their trips for the same amount of time that we're staying at their place. And they have like three times as much stuff. You really don't need that much, you know, while you're traveling or in general, I feel. But, you know, the less stuff that you drag around with you, the more enjoyable your experience will be, like the less uncomfortable you'll be dealing with that stuff. Take this from two full-time travelers. We have to travel with a certain level of bare necessities. You know, so we've definitely over the last few years, we've been doing this for several years now, have figured out how to minimize how much we pack and how much we really need. So I guarantee you, if you're packing more than one bag for a week trip, you're probably packing too much. It's totally true what Sam said. Every time people see us, they're like, what? How do you how are you traveling with this little and you're going to live out of that bag while we're gone on our trip? Look at what you actually use. A good uh, test would be like, look at what leaves your bag when you go travel and what stays in your bag the whole time. And if that never left, you don't need it. And another way to look at this, in case you think we're saying something that sounds impossible, again, we f travel full-time, usually have half as much as people are taking when we go to their house sit to sit for them. And on top of that, we've only recently started checking a bag. And the reason we only recently started checking a bag is just certain things you can't take as carry-on. Otherwise, we would only fly with carry-on bags. But yeah, if we can travel full-time out of one check bag and whatever we have is carry-on, you absolutely can reduce how much you're traveling with. Yeah, so um, I think that about rounds it up. We went over a bunch of different stuff, you know, just to kind of show you how many aspects there are to more sustainable travel. But hopefully we gave you some, like things to think about again all of this is like each of these tips could be a whole episode and we've written articles on a lot of this so i will link a ton of links in the show notes if you are interested and as always if you have questions please let us know and maybe it'll be a future episode sounds like a plan thank you for listening to the alternative travelers podcast more episodes and show notes, go to alternativetravelers.com slash podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider leaving a five-star rating and review on iTunes. This helps more people find the podcast and is greatly appreciated.